I think it's important to talk about the cultural inheritance, to talk about the culture, to talk about um, the things that we don't see in the history books because it's really interesting. We just, if we don't talk about those things, it's like a, an entire like lost part of our past. You're listening to What is Black Podcast, where we have conversations about issues important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and adolescents. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget, a board-certified pediatrician and mom. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What is Black. Um, I have with me today our, my special guest, Shonda Buchanan. Um, for this discussion, I wanted to, um, to learn more about um, Shonda's new memoir, um, Black Indian, I know as, a, as an African-American who, has, um, who is biracial, you know, I think we, we, when we talk about our family lineage, we basically talk about, you know, the European and African ancestry. And I think um, Shonda has a, has a really great perspective because of her, her diverse family background, and I'll let her get into that as we um, start the conversation. So welcome, Shonda, to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, I am honored um, that... Um, that you are our guest today. So, Shonda, before we get started, if you can share with our listeners a little bit, a little bit about yourself. So, I uh, live in Los Angeles right now, but I'm um, a transplant. Um, and the the backstory is, I came to Los Angeles when I was 18 years old from my hometown of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And um, I guess as a kid, I felt like uh, Kalamazoo kind of wasn't big enough for my artistic spirit. And I kind of always knew that I was leaving. So um, at 18, I came to Los Angeles and um, I knew for some reason that I didn't want to go directly to college. I wanted to travel, (laughs) hopefully travel the world like that was a one of my, my, um, my goals. And um, when I got to Los Angeles, the first year or so, I really didn't like it. And then the second year, I kind of gravitated towards a writing community in Lamert Park. And it was um, the World Stage Performance Gallery founded by Kamau Daoud, uh, award-winning poet, and also Billy Higgins, uh, who is now deceased. But Billy was one of the most recorded jazz drummers in the world. And I kind of fell into this crew of writers who um, who really helped me hone my voice uh, as a writer, as a young writer, a budding writer. And um, and then uh, I got uh, I was here until 2004, and then I got a job at Hampton University. I taught at Hampton University for 13 years, and again I kind of fell into a writing community there, a really wonderful um, community of poets. I was on the board of the Poetry Society of Virginia, the Hampton Roads Writers, um, just really, really supportive and fantastic writers, um, poet laureates who, you know, belong to the Poetry Society of Virginia. Um, but I, but even though I, I loved my community in Virginia, I always pined for Los Angeles. And so I moved back here uh, in January 2018. So, um, I guess my teaching trajectory is I taught at, um, I received my teaching fellowship, my MA from uh, LMU uh, in uh, in English, I'm so sorry. And then I also received my MFA from Antioch University, which the Antiochians, I have to give a shout out because we're fantastic. Um, And the Los Angeles, you know, ones at least. 
and um, I received my, my MFA from there. And then, um, and then, and, and then I, I decided I wanted to kind of branch out of Los Angeles in 2004. So I applied to that job at Hampton University. Um, yeah, so that's my educational trajectory. And right now I'm back in Los Angeles and I'm back teaching at LMU. Oh, very cool. So um, as you've alluded to, you are a writer as well as a educator and poet, and you have your new memoir, Black Indian. So I was wondering if you could, you know, share a little bit about, um, about that, about your new book and what motivated you to write the book. My book, I consider it a prayer for my family. And I think it took me a while to think about it like that, because I wanted to tell the story of my mother. I wanted to tell the story of my mom and my aunts. And I wanted to tell that mother-daughter story as well as the sister-to-sister relationship. I talk a lot about my sister, uh, Rochelle, who is the sister who actually raised me. And I kind of wanted to give testimony to their lives as women, what it was like to grow up in the Midwest as a a mixed-blood woman, um, what it was like to kind of be in, you know, continual relationships. And I think the thing that really informed my childhood, besides the the love coming from a big family, was also kind of the dysfunction. I think it's I, I think it came from heredity. I think uh, it came from kind of a loss of identity of traveling on that migration trail. So it felt to me like, as a kid, I was caught in this. As a child, you just don't think about certain things as certain episodes as, wow, how is this my life? Like this, I don't think this is my friend's lives. You just kind of are surviving, you know, when violent things happen. And um, I was never um, physically abused by my parents as a child, but I just saw a lot of abuse in the relationships around me. Um, so, so when I, when I started writing the book, I really wanted to tell that story about my mom and like the, the beauty and then also the pain that I saw them suffering and living with. Uh, and then their resilience and the triumph, you know, of those relationships or surviving, you know, certain kinds of abuse and addiction. And then uh, as I really started researching it a bit more and re- looking at the family history and um, the intersections of our black and Indian heritage, I was like, wait a minute, there's a whole, there's a, there's a reason why it felt like to me, you know, why we were acting out this theater um, that was so um, kind of caustic. And, and we, we talk a lot about how slavery is the, or, you know, the actual enslavement of Africans um, from Africa is the collective inheritance of black people in America. But we don't talk about how the intersections of enslavement and the trail of tears, and then also French trappers and missionaries marrying people of color, and you know, kind of what that that tri-raciality uh, suffered, right? And um, mm-hmm. or or what they had to deal with, and and I so 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 in that I started just kind of pulling together certain you know stories of our intersection and stories of my my grandfather's. Uh, my father's grandfather being an African man who had married, who had two wives at the same time. So one was a Choctaw woman. This is the family lore. One was an African woman, and they both lived down the street from each other in Mississippi. And then, um, you know, many more stories from my mom's side of the family. 
So, so it became this story of what I call um, kind of the, a, a tapestry or kind of the hidden, the real hidden story of, of black Americans in this country. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because I'm not trying to tell the tragic mulatto tale because I don't want to do that. I'm really trying to tell the mixed blood tale or the free people of color tale at the same time with my fist pumped in the air because I know I am black in America because I get treated like a black person in America. So so, so I, I talk all about that in, in the book. All right. It sounds, I mean, that sounds fascinating. And I think so many you know, as I alluded to when I started, I think so many people can relate to that. A lot of times, I think, mm-hmm. like, like I said earlier, I think historically, I think we talk more about um, European and African ancestry for a lot of um, Black Americans. But I know that there are there are a good number of African Americans who have that lived experience. They have um, European, African, as well as um, Native um, Native backgrounds. And so you write about, like you alluded to as well, you write about an intersection of race and culture. And I was wondering for you, you know, again, what what speaks to you about the importance of exploring the intersectionality? I think that it goes back to the piece of if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? And that's kind of something that for Black Americans, I think we've grown up with, um, that, that Sankofa well, I'm sorry, a certain group of black people <laughs> have grown up with that, that Sankofa um, principle of you must, know, you must know your past so you can change your future, right? You must know where you came from so you can celebrate and you can move forward or past a certain thing. And so I think it's important to talk about um, cultural inheritance and um, of this particular you know, group of folks and um, traditions, I think, because there is, um, it's that duality of you think it's only black people in America suffering from being black in America, but it's a systemic like, issue and a systemic ill that was constructed. Um, and you can look at anti-miscegenation laws of the 17 and 1800s where they made it um, illegal to marry. White men couldn't marry black women. They couldn't marry American Indian women. Um, um, and then there was a moment where African Americans or, or Negro at the time or colored, you know, couldn't marry Indians because they were trying to keep count. They were trying to keep the races separate because, you know, if you did it, then there could be insurrection and there could be a, a unification. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, we're we are more than them. This is the Nat Turner principle, right? We are more than the slavers. We are more than the slave masters. We actually could rebel. And actually, it's interesting, many more rebellions did happen than are reported in our history books. Nat Turner just happened to be, you know, a really incredible um, kind of powerful one, caustic one, particularly um, after the Nat Turner rebellion and the slave masters just cracked down on all of their slaves. And that was you know, terrible, but, you know, rebellion is necessary. Uh, The Bacon's Rebellion, Bacon Rebellion, a lot of people don't talk about that. That happened in Virginia as well. And that was actually Africans uh, and and the Europeans rebelling or fighting, you know, the American Indians in um, in that particular area. So I think it's important to talk about the cultural inheritance, to talk about the culture, to talk about 
um, the things that we don't see in the history books because it's really interesting. We just, if we don't talk about those things, it's like a, an entire like lost part of our past. Um, and I think too, when the issue of the, the 2020 census now, it's not just the immigrant question. It's also how many mixed people are there? How many people claim by or try raciality? And in 2020, why is this still a thing that we're dealing with? Why can't we all just claim Americans, right? So, so, and I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm a quote-unquote lay historian. I'm the genealogist for my family. But when I see stories um, continually um, uh, crop up in, in my research uh, where things that I've never seen in my history books, I think that's a problem. <laughs> I think it's a problem, and I and I think you're. I mean, I think you speak to um, speak to an issue that is is concerning, right? Unfortunately, the history a lot of times history is written from the perspective of the person that's writing that history, um, right? And you and I think what's great is that you have an opportunity. You've had an opportunity to write your own perspective, your own your own history from your own you know from your own lived experiences, from your your family's lived experience, which I think is. It's such a blessing, I think, in some ways, and such a unique opportunity. Because, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned before, there's a lot of trauma, right, historical trauma mm-hmm. for um, many communities of color, especially African-American and Native um, Native cultures, and and others as well. So I don't want to discount other other individuals' um, experiences, right, exactly. yeah. racial experiences. How were you able to, you know, to do the research? Like, what was your research process? Um, to be able to unearth and find these these great um, family discoveries. Yeah, that's so. That's a good question. the The first thing that I knew I had to do was to write down everything that I remembered. Um, to write down everything that I was thinking about in terms of what my mom had told me about heritage what my aunts had said about my heritage, what my grandfather, you know, said about our heritage, because a lot of us um, do come to our um, mixed race raciality through the, you know, oral narrative, you know, um, and, and, and that connects to slaves not being able to write, you know, being punished if they could read, um, having their ears cut off, or, you know, if, if they showed any kind of intelligence or any kind of education, so we told our stories like African griots. We told them to each other. We passed them down. Think roots, right? For me, I knew I had to write down everything I remembered, and then I interviewed people. And so, because I wanted to know, like, what do you remember? What did, what, did your, what did my grandfather, you know, say to you about, your, you know, your heritage? What did my grandmother say to you? And my grandfather was dead. I couldn't interview him. My grandmother was dead on my mom's side. I couldn't interview her. My grandmother on my father's side had um, Alzheimer's. And so she, she remembered me, and then she would forget me. So I had to just, you know, go to the oldest, which was my great-aunt Mildred, and, um, and ask her what she remembered. But then also my, my, the youngest aunt in the family, my Aunt Mildred, remembered a lot more than a lot of the other folks. And when I got there and I would ask her specific questions, and I would ask hard questions, too, because I'm not that kind of interviewer who, just because you're my family member, I won't, I'm not going to be easy on you. <laughs> so I would ask questions that I would say, 
What did you think about, you know, Grandpa Stafford was my grandfather, her, her dad. I was like, what do you think about your dad's infidelity? You know, do you think that he intended to hurt our, our, you know, my grandmother, your mother? I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? And that was like a question, you know, in the middle of the interview. I didn't start out with that. But she gave the most interesting answer, answer when she said, well, Daddy always said that those women just, um, somebody had to tell those women that they were pretty. And if, if he didn't do it, who would tell them that they were pretty? And I was like, is that really how you saw it? And that probably was how she saw it because her worldview had been shaped by, you know, a man she loved, her father, right? And then also a man she didn't want to betray. And I think that's really an interesting point. Um, in terms of uh, women who have learned to keep secrets about the men that they love, um, if it's an abusive and emotionally or physically abusive relationship, because you're trying to protect them. You don't want to betray them, and then you don't want people to know what you're going through at the same time. Um, and so that's another another piece of, um, you know, several moments in my 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 aunt's life and my, my, mom, my mom's life, definitely, so, so, so in interviewing my great aunt, that was interesting. And then, I'm sorry, that aunt, Aunt Mildred, she was my, my mom's sister. But when I went to my great aunt Catherine, and I'm sorry I interchanged aunt and aunt, but um, when I went to my, my, great, my great aunt Catherine and I asked her over the phone and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a story about the family and I was wondering if I could talk to you about you know, your parents and, you know, some of those things that had happened. And she just, she said to me, I'm not talking to you about my family. And it just floored, it just, it stumped me. One, because I always knew, it's, it's almost like I always knew that I would be there asking her a question which she would not answer. Because this is the aunt who did not like the darker skin grandkids or, or nieces and nephews. She wouldn't let us in her house sometimes to get water. She would leave us on her porch because we were too hot and sweaty and dark, you know. Um, she was one of those women who could pass. Um, and so, like, <laughs> when she told me that, I, I kind of knew it even though I was taken aback. And I was like, wait a minute, this is my family too. This is my, like, your blood runs in my veins. So to her, I was just this nosy person. I was a nosy stranger who was asking questions about, about the family. And again, here's the point where black people have grown up with the idea, the concept of don't air your dirty laundry in public. Don't tell your family business. If you tell your family business, that's the worst thing, right? That's the worst thing you could do. And for me, it's always been about if you are suffering from a thing and you don't talk about it, but then you see other people are suffering from the same thing, how is that positive? <laughs> how is this, um, how is it acceptable? Um, and I, I think I kind of refuse to be silent about the things that happened in my family and I, re I refuse to let abusers, you know, get away with that. Um, so, so, so I can, I can even, you know, 
that we, you know, pull this, pull this image and this picture out into, you know, our society. And the first abusers, of course, are, you know, for us, the slave masters and the soldiers, you know, who, who put us on the trail and, um, you know, people who essentially just, um, you know, for whatever reason, discriminated against us or, you know, were prejudiced or whatever. But, like, that's abuse that we grew up, like, we, we lived with. And it was, it was in our collective membrane. It was like, you just accept it. You just say, yes, sir, no, sir. You move on and you survive. And your men won't be lynched. Your women won't be raped. And you move on and you survive. But that silence... The silence does not help anybody when it's, when it's an abusive situation, when it's abusive like that. That silence just doesn't help anybody. I, I know that now. I know that now. So it, sounds, so it sounds like you also, you know, got a lot more out of the process of researching your family history than just the narrative, right, just what historically happened. But it sounds like you also gained a sort of a freedom from that research. So how do you have any of your relatives that you've spoken with since, you know, um, since starting the, the journey of writing the, the memoir, have they had any different feelings about it or how, how have they reacted to, um, to the novel, to the, to the memoir? So my mom, um, I gave my mom a copy of the memoir when I first finished the first draft, maybe about seven years ago. And um, this was the first draft. And then I just kept working on it, editing. And, you know, and then, of course, it was accepted by Wayne State University um, Press a couple of years ago. And it takes a couple of years to get to, um, to actually be published. So, when I, so maybe it was longer than I gave her the manuscript. At any rate, when I gave her the manuscript, she, she read it and she said, well, you spelled Aunt Catherine's name wrong. And that's all she said to me. And, um, but I, I, I knew... And I felt that my mom really always wanted her story told. Like, she really always wanted a kind of um, vindication for what she had gone through. And she didn't have her own way of telling the story. Um, So, yes, I did get a lot out of the research process. I did come to a lot of, like, moments of healing for myself uh, as, as I was writing the book and particularly in certain, you know, places where I didn't understand what had happened, like what it, what it meant <laughs> for some of the things that had happened. There's a, there's a moment where I write in the book that, um, so my, my siblings and I had gone to the country, uh, Bangor, we call it the country. It's all kind of country down there. But we went to our um, uh, uncle's house, uh, grandfather's house, I'm sorry. Uh, it's actually my brother's and sister's grandfather, and I just happen to, I'm, I am the sixth child, fourth girl child, who, um, who is, I'm, the, I'm from the second marriage, so they're my, my technically my half-siblings. So we went to their grandfather's house, and we came back. When we came back, one of my mother's uh, ex-boyfriends had poured acid over, like had broken into our house and poured acid over everything that he had given her. And this was a man who had abused my mom physically uh, and emotionally and psychologically. So 
So as a kid, I must have been, I don't know, seven or eight or nine or something like that. And that if that's a memory that you hold, it, it like, like a cell, you know, like a cell in your body. And it's just something you come back to and you reflect on and you're like, oh, so glad I survived that. But then it's like, what the heck was that? You know, as you grow older, like, why did that happen? Can a man be so uh, hurt and so uh, angry and um, vengeful that he, and, and from, you know, a woman who had moved on, that he would do that? Like, did he love my mother that much? Or did he hate, hate my mother that much? You know what I mean? So I'm asking these questions that, in, that, that I try to use to inform my relationships and to create better relationships. But as you know, you are inheriting your, um, your childhood environment. You know, you're inheriting the, the, the kinds of things that, um, that you've seen in your life. And for me, again, I was never emo- I was never physically abused by uh, my mom or my dad. Uh, I was never in an abusive uh, uh, relationship, a physically abusive relationship. My first marriage was definitely emotionally and psychologically abusive. And even as I was writing, you know, portions of this book, I was just kind of. It was weird because I could feel the the parallel and I can see the parallel of my, my, my relationship with my first marriage to things that I'd seen my mother and that I had, that I saw in my aunt and my sister's relationships. And I was like, Oh no, I, I've got to get out of this. Like, it's just like you said, you would never be in, a, in an abusive relationship. And though it's not physical, there is abuse happening here. And I think it's, um, so yeah, so 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 I think uh, a lot of women, you know, that I talk to, my sisters, and and we commiserate, and we're like, yeah, how did that happen? Like, how do we how do we how how are we repeating our mother's lies? How are we repeating um, things that we said we would never uh, endure or encounter? Like, how is that possible? So I'm hoping that my book. Even if it doesn't introduce, I'm, I'm rather, I'm so sorry, it introduces, and even if I'm not pedantically trying to tell people what to do, but I'm hoping that if they see certain things that have happened in my family, that they can identify them for themselves and come to their own kind of realization, epiphany, um, way of healing, way of dealing and healing. The thing that resonate, is resonating with me is the fact that you've had an opportunity to talk about issues and question issues, right, and have conversations, which I think seems to be a sort of like a recurring, I'm talking like a recurring theme with a, with a lot of um, issues around race and racism, right, because we haven't talked about it for so long or, or haven't had conversations where maybe we could have have the dialogue back and forth either with family and especially when I when my podcast is you know helping inform parents right the role of yeah. we have to open up and we have to talk about things that we don't really want to talk about but it's important right because like yeah. you said I think it does once we break that silence like you said I think you will start start a healing process yeah I agree I really agree um 
Yeah, and I mean, even with the piece about being a parent, you know, and and doing the best you can as a parent, right? Um, as a black parent in America, you know, with all the things that that we deal with. So Frances Crest Wilson, her knowing was, you should have something, something in your psyche to show that black is beautiful, all around your house all around your house and that way when they when they leave your home they will still have a good sense of self-regard as Toni Morrison calls that they will have self-confidence they will have um a a a stronger sense of I will accept this I won't accept that this is something that occurred to me that is wrong I am going to name that thing that happened to me in my classroom with a white teacher or on a bus stop, you know, with a, a, a white man or in another country. Um, and that's another, I'll tell you that story in a minute. But if we are, if we are instilling our children with a sense, with a sensibility that black is beautiful, black is not just beautiful, black is magical. Like black is, um, uh, like uh, Rebecca Walker said, said something about, um, I was at a reading with Rebecca Walker a couple of, a year and a half ago. And she said, no one can take funk from black people. Like funk is indigenously African and that's the thing, you know, and I was like, yes, I was like, black is funky, you know? So, so that's the thing that, that you, that you, as a parent, you want to, to give to your kids. And I think that it's, it's a little hard, harder to do that when you are, when you are just trying to survive in your life as a woman who has been abused or a woman who has been, um, you know, uh, in, in any way, you know, molested as a child and you're living with that memory. And so, yeah, um, the role of the parent, particularly the role of the black parent, is such an important job. It's such an important job. And I, I, I want to say um, I know that my mother and my aunt, like, come like the mannerism comes back to me in certain moments. But I also know that I'm learning to stand up for myself when I do things like this. Uh, I was in Egypt uh, a couple of uh, December 2017. And at this time, I was, um, I had decided that I would not tolerate uh, accidental racism. <laughs> right? Like if, if, you know, someone says something and, and, and if I'm in their presence or if they ask me a question, you know, I was going to say something. So I was in Egypt and these two tall white guys were coming out of the National Egyptian Museum behind me. And one of the guys said, man, that was so racist. Was that racist? And so I guess they thought I was Muslim or, you know, something, but I turn around to them and I say, I say, do you guys want to run it by me? Because I think I could tell you whether or not that was racist. And they were like, no, 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 no. That's, we don't want to do that. And so, so, you know, that's a moment where I learned to stand up, you know, as in myself as a, as a black woman, no matter where I am in the world. And, and, it, and it feels good the more that you do it in a nice way, in a way that is constructive, in a way that hopefully that that person will go to the next person and they'll say, hey, did you, did you know that when you say this or when you think that or when you do this, that's, that's racist against some people. That's racist against people of color. That, you know, some people might misinterpret that. So, yeah, so, so, so I, 
in, even in the book, you can tell that um, my family, we do not, um, we don't pussyfoot. You know, we, we're very just kind of blunt. And, and hopefully you love us. So now how does, how does your, your, I guess, your understanding of who you are, you know, racially, right, how is that informed by your, your tri-raciality, right, your tri-ethnic ethnicity? Yeah. So that's a good, good, good question. Identity, I have learned, is in the blood, but identity is also more than the blood. Um, and I say this because as a growing up, asking my mom, what are we? And my mom saying to me, you are, you are French, you are German, you are Indian, and you are a little bit of black. And so I was, I accepted it. And I was like, okay, so I'm French, I'm German. She didn't say white. She didn't say European. It was like those ethnicities, right? So, but when I went to school and I looked like a black girl and I had to um, uh, claim something and then people would always ask me, what are you mixed with? And it was just, a, you know, for me, it was like the oddest question when I was younger. And then I started thinking, I was like, well, you are mixed. Or I don't know if it was like a thought, but it was like, you can't claim white because that'll get you beat up. <laughs> like, and you, and you don't look white. Like, so, so you can't claim that. But you do, you have what looks like the features of Indian. Like, you are a light-skinned girl. So my identity became, for me, black Indian. Black woman in America, American Indian woman in America, um, dealing, uh, sharing the same kind of struggles and triumphs, and you know, the, celebrating the culture. Uh, I danced, so I've danced powwow for like 11 years, um, and then for 10 years I danced West African dance. I was really involved in my West African um, culture and roots. But always going back to the question of what are you mixed with? And I'm like, why, why do you have to orient me? Why do we feel like we have to categorize a person's race and ethnicity in order to feel comfortable in our own skin, right? And so, like, that is a, a really interesting um, question that I've dealt with as a writer, as a researcher, and then theoretically, you know, in the books that, that I teach um, as a professor, what makes, what makes us feel safe when we know what a, per, what, a, what a person is or what makes us feel like we can operate or maybe we can say certain things to a mixed blood person that we wouldn't say to other people. Um, I, I, I saw a, a talk. Um, by this guy who's uh, black and white. I think he said his mom is white, his dad is black. And sometimes his friends would say, oh, but you're okay because you're half white. And it's like, well, really? Like, what does that mean? So what it, So are you, are you negating the half black part of him? And did he speak up for himself? Did he speak up for himself? And so a lot of that, that piece about, um, you know, that mixed race, recovery um, and then and reconciling your, your mixed 
your triraciality is about saying, for me, I know what I know how I identify. I identify as Black Indian, but I know from my DNA that I do have European, so I do have British. I do have Irish. Seven generations back, I have a full-blood ancestor. This is what the DNA for, from 23andMe said. Seven generations back, I have a full-blood American Indian ancestor. I can point directly to that person. Like, I know who that person is. I know their tribe, several of them. But when my DNA said, you have an Ash, a, seven generations back, you have a full-blood Ashkenazi Jewish ancestor. And I was like, what? Who is that? <laughs> who is this Jewish person on my family tree? We never had a menorah. We never knew. You know what I mean? Like, did this person disappear in our family? Like, how is that possible? We did have a Mahoney, and I always thought, okay, there's the Irish part. You know, one of my grandfathers married a Mahoney. But who's this Jewish person? You know, so, so for me, it is now definitely having a sense of... Um, awareness. And even when I went to England, you know, when I went to England, I did feel a connection to Cornwall, which for me was odd because, you know, I'm thinking Africa is my homeland and America is my homeland. And, um, and here I am in England. So it is now a, a part of my job is, um, is acknowledging all of those ancestors, when we do ceremony, we say, uh, uh, depending on the ceremony, we say a thing, um, American Indian ceremony, we will say all my relations. And when we say all my relations, that is every ethnicity and race, which is a construction, you know, but every tribe that you belong to from the time beginning of time, millennia, all your, you are praying for yourself and you are praying for all those relations, however you came to be. So a part of that is saying, all right, I, I know I have this ancestry, which I was never categorized as, and my mother would always say she was human. She would never say, <laughs> she, I mean, she wouldn't, she wouldn't fully claim on, um, on the sheet, uh, you know, whatever the little boxes, uh, she would she would never claim fully Negro. She wouldn't claim white. She would write her own little box and say human. And and you know, um, and I think that is like a, a very uh, passive aggressive, and then at the same time direct way of saying you can't classify me. There is no classification for. Um, for who I am, why don't you just call me human and leave it like that? So, yeah, that's, I think that's a part of, you know, it is. We, we are trying to reconcile. We are trying to, um, I am trying to educate um, myself on it. I am, when I tell people, when I'm lecturing and I'm in a, a room full of white people, and I start talking about heredity and identity and raciality and, um, and these, these coexisting and, and tri-existing, you know, spaces of, of, a, of a mixed blood person. And I'll say to them, you know, we could be cousins. And half of the room will look at me like, what? You know, offended, you know? And I can see it. And the other half 
yeah, we could be cousins, you know? And so that always gives me hope when the other half of the room is accepting. And it's like, okay, because if you can accept me as your cousin, if you can accept me as a mixed blood person, as someone who had a different upbringing and experience in America, then, then maybe we can um, come to a place where, you know, we can start eking out and, and, and um, addressing those past, um, you know, uh, gosh, just systemic ills that, um, that, that black Americans, those every, people who have been classified as black Americans, no matter how light or how white they look, if we can actually start saying, yeah, you could be, you could be my, in the 21st century, you could be my cousin. How about I treat every other person who looks like you or every other person of this, of this, um, in this elk or this race or whatever. How about I treat them with fairness? How about I treat them like my, like my family, like my relatives? Like I want to do well by them. I want them to do good. I want to do, you know, good in my, you know, um, I'm not saying that correctly, but I wanted, I want us all to have the same, um, the same kinds of life and the same uh, schooling and um, the same economic bracket. And you know what I mean? So, 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 and maybe that is being a bit um, simplistic. Our society is so problematic, and it's and it was designed for you know um, division. It was designed with division in, in in place. So so maybe that is simplistic, but I, I you know we just we have to do what we can do in society to just you know move the human race forward. So thank you for allowing me to share. I'm I'm hoping that um, that the book does does do more good. <laughs> You know, more good in this society. Tomorrow, it'll be one week before my book is released. So I have some interviews. I have some podcasts. I have a lot of events happening. So I have um, on August 24th, I am on two panels uh, at the Limerick Park Book Fair. So the first panel is at 10 a.m. And that's with uh, Luis Rodriguez, who is a former poet laureate of L.A. And he's also mixed blood. So we're talking about what it means to be um, a geography of the blood, who gets to call themselves, what, you know, what, what they get to call themselves and how we write about it. The 430 panel, it's mixed race and writing. So I have three, no, four uh, biracial, triracial writers, and we're going to talk, really just kind of, you know, explore what it means to be a mixed race writer. Uh, and then I also have on uh, September Seventh in New York, I will be talking uh, in discussion with an author, with another author at the Seaport Literary Festival, um, and in New York. And then on uh, September 11th, I will be at SL1 Books in Los Angeles at 6 p.m. And then uh, that same evening at 8:30, I will be reading at the World Stage. So and. September 22nd at 2 p.m. I'm at the Autry. So, like, there's so much happening, and I will definitely send you the flyer. So for for our listeners, how can they learn more about you and um, and the upcoming book? 
They can go to my website, uh, which is shondabuchanan.com, S-H-O-N-D as in David, A, B as in boy, U-C-H-A-N-A-N.com. They can also go to Amazon. They can order the book Black Indian on Amazon. Uh, my bio is there, so they can learn more information about me there. And they can also go to uh, Wayne State University Press, and um, I have a page on that um, on that website as well. And if they go, if they want to contact me, they can contact me through my website, which is my info at shondabuchanan.com. I want to thank my guest Shonda Buchanan for joining us for this episode of What Is Black podcast, and I also want to thank you all for listening to this episode. As always. We'd love to hear from you and hear your comments and feedback about this episode. And to listen to other great episodes, please follow us on um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And remember to um, download and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast.